Greetings! You're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. In episode two, we sit down with a rising superstar in the field of exoplanetary astronomy. We caught her just in time because she is leaving Caltech in a matter of days to join the faculty at the University of California, Berkeley. Courtney Dressen, good to see you again. Good to see you too. Thanks for having me. And as always, we're here with Elise Cutts, the co-host of this podcast. Hey there. And Peter Gao is also here, our guest from episode one. Hello. Elise, why don't you take it away? Yeah, um, Courtney, so I, I don't know anything about you at all. So what, what's your background? What do you do research in? Like, what are you about? I study exoplanets. In particular, I focus on small planets that are roughly Earth-sized, orbiting stars that are tiny, puny stars called red dwarfs. Red dwarfs are about half the size of the sun, and they make up 75% of stars in the galaxy. So even though they're pretty dim, they pack a big punch in terms of their numbers in the galaxy. That's awesome. I've heard a lot about red dwarfs, especially with the uh, TRAPPIST system recently. Were you involved in that at all, or do you know anything about that? I wasn't involved with TRAPPIST at all, but I'm fascinated by the discovery. TRAPPIST-1 is an extremely small red dwarf. It's only about 10% the size of the sun, which means that it's very dim, and its planets need to be very close to the star in order to receive enough light to have liquid water on their surface. We know that TRAPPIST-1 harbors many planets, and three of those planets might actually have water on their surfaces. It's going to be tricky to measure the masses of the planets and figure out which of them might actually be very similar to Earth, but we're on the right track to do that, and in the future, we're going to take more observations of the systems, and perhaps we'll be able to see biosignatures. So hold on, uh, TRAPPIST-1, Tra- what is what is TRAPPIST-1, what, is, what does that mean? Well, do you drink beer? Every once in a while. Hey, we're geologists, we're <laughs> planetary scientists. <laughs> Wait, I'm underage. <laughs> so you've seen people drink beer. Absolutely. You might have seen them drink Belgian beer. Trappist is a style of beer that's from Belgium, and the observers, the astronomers, who wanted to find planets were also very obsessed with beer. So they named their telescope Trappist after the brewery. Classic. That's a funny story. Okay. All right. So this Trappist system... Uh, was discovered, what, a couple months ago? Is, is that About right? a year. About a year ago, okay. And the planets were uh, announced just earlier this year, right? There were two planets found initially. Oh, okay. And a sign of a third planet. It turned out that third planet was actually two planets, each of which crossed in front of the star once. We then looked at TRAPPIST with Spitzer, which is a telescope in space that's following the Earth in its orbit around the Sun, And with Spitzer, they were able to see signs of six planets, or seven planets perhaps, orbiting the star. The system was then re-examined with the NASA K2 spacecraft, and they saw more examples of those planets crossing in front of the star. So now we know that the TRAPPIST-1 system is very heavily populated, and people have even speculated that it could be one of the best targets for the James Webb Space Telescope in the future years. That's awesome. So it sounds like you're kind of a real-life space explorer. (laughs) Did you get into Star Trek? Because you kind of have this like exploration mindset, or just why, why, why are you here talking to us about Star Trek when you could be off like finding planets? <laughs> I think I can do both, and the stars aren't up right now, or they are. We can't see them because the sun's in the way. Mm-hmm. I started watching Star Trek when I was pretty little. As a kid, I remember coming home from school and watching reruns of Star Trek on TV. I know that this is controversial, but I'm a big fan of Captain Janeway, and part of the reason for that is that I felt that there was a shortage of women in science on television when I was growing up. 
I had a bunch of books about female scientists and female astronauts, but I didn't really have anyone on the television that I could go look at. And it was great to see someone as powerful and commanding as Janeway on TV, and then to later watch Deep Space Nine and see Commander Kira. Yeah. Yeah, Janeway is definitely my favorite captain. I think Peter would agree with me. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and she was a scientist too, which is pretty inspiring, especially like as a little girl who was watching Star Trek reruns too, because, you know, even though I'm much younger than you are, they've been doing reruns. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm an undergrad, okay? <laughs> we already went through this with Trappist and Fear. <laughs> um, I, was, I was a little girl watching Star Trek reruns too, and Voyager would come on, and it was just like, there's a female captain? Like, oh my gosh. It was just, it was, it blew my mind the first time I saw it. I didn't, I didn't even know about Janeway for like probably a year after I started watching Star Trek, so it was pretty inspiring. So besides Captain Janeway, what do you love about Star Trek? I love that it presents a world in which there are people of all types and backgrounds exploring together. I think Star Trek has a place in history as an example of diversity, which is wonderful. And then scientifically, Star Trek was at the cutting edge in terms of what we're trying to do today. Right now, we have evidence that there are planets orbiting other stars, but back in the 60s, that wasn't known for sure. So they took a giant leap of faith, assuming that we could actually find planets around other stars and colonize them and then explore them. And they also made a lot of assumptions about the technologies we use to communicate with each other, and some of those turned out to be pretty spot on. Yeah, communicators. I've got one in my pocket right now. <laughs> Now that's a great point that you brought up about Star Trek in the 60s. They had no idea that there were actually strange new worlds out there. They just sort of assumed it. And now we live in an age where, you know, we just take it for granted that there are exoplanets out there because we know that they're out there in the thousands at least. And we can extrapolate and know that there are probably billions of, of other worlds out there in, in our galaxy. Um, so Courtney, when and how was the first exoplanet discovered? Depends on who you ask. There is a story back in 1989 that astronomers were studying stars and they were looking at how quickly the star was moving away from us and towards us. And they do that using a method called the Doppler wobble. They saw evidence of another object orbiting that star. They called that object a brown dwarf in the publication, but in recent years, people have decided that that first object, known as Latham's world, probably really was the first detection of an extrasolar planet. The other reference you might see is from 1995, where a planet was detected using a pulsar timing technique, where pulsars set off pulses at particular times, and those pulses were arriving at times that weren't quite expected. And that was due to a planet orbiting the star, causing those timings to be off slightly. Since then, we've discovered a lot of planets with the radio velocity technique, that Doppler wobble technique, where you see the tug of the planet on the star. And then beginning in the early 2000s, the transit technique started to take over. With that method, we look at a star, and we notice when a planet crosses between us and the star. That planet blocks some of the light from the star, just like your thumb could block light from a flashlight. With that method, we've now found thousands of planets orbiting other stars, and they were mostly detected by the NASA Kepler mission. Was that the way that the planet that was recently found around the closest star to Earth was detected? Or So Proxima Centauri b is the closest star to Earth, and that planet, unfortunately, does not transit. It's really annoying, because it would be wonderful to take observations of it transiting, but it was found with the radial velocity Doppler wobble. So you said it's unfortunate that Proxima Centauri b doesn't transit. So why is that? Is, is there different information that we gather from planets when they transit versus when we detect them via RV? Exactly. The main thing we can detect via transit is the size of the planet, because we're able to figure out how big the planet is compared to the star. 
The other information we get is that we know exactly what the mass of the planet is. With the Doppler wobble technique, we actually only obtain a minimum on the planet mass. So we might report that the planet mass is at least five Earth masses, but what if it's 10 or 15? Then our interpretation of the planet could be very different. What about information beyond just, you know, how big the planet is, how heavy it is? Like, we want life. <laughs> we do want life, and transiting planets are great for that, because when a planet transit, light from the star will shine through the planet's atmosphere, and any gases in the atmosphere of the planet will leave their fingerprint on the light when it reaches our telescopes. So we can use transiting methods to probe the atmospheres of planets and figure out which of them have things like oxygen, and methane, and carbon dioxide in their atmospheres. In the future, in maybe 10 to 30 years, We'll start doing that more with direct imaging, where we actually block out the light from the star and take a picture of a planet orbiting a nearby star. This won't be a pretty picture. This will be a picture that's maybe one or two pixels in size because the image is slightly blurred. And in that data, we could try to find signs of life on planets that do not transit. That's incredible. So maybe one day we'll know what's on Proxima Centauri's planet. That'd be great. We could do that with the next generation of ground-based, extremely large telescopes. Telescopes that are 20 to 40 meters across. That's huge. Yes. Um, so what are you working on right now, Courtney? Right now, I'm working on a telescope proposal to try to get more observations with the Doppler wobble technique of planets that were detected by the NASA K2 mission. I'm also trying to figure out how common small planets are around very small stars of different types. We know that small stars in general host a lot of planets, and that on average they have two and a half planets per star, and one out of every four of them has a planet that's potentially like Earth, it's Earth size and Earth wow, temperature. That's incredible. But we don't know exactly how those occurrence patterns change as we go to smaller and smaller stars, or stars that have slightly more or less metal content. So I'd like to figure that out. I'm also involved in a more distant project for the future, where we're thinking about designing a telescope for 2035 or thereabouts. So it's still an ancient past compared to the land of Star Trek, but a really exciting frontier because with this telescope, which would be probably 16 meters or so in space, we will be able to take some of the first pictures of nearby planets orbiting other stars. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> so you mentioned these M dwarfs, these red dwarfs, the smaller, dimmer stars that you're studying, and you said that those made up 75% of the stars in the Milky Way. That's pretty exciting. They do. So when you go outside, not in LA because you can't see anything, anything here. <laughs> you can but see other stars. You, yeah, you can see you other can see stars. Orion. That's about it. <laughs> Even if you go, say, to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and you look up and you see the Milky Way and you see all those stars, none of those are red dwarfs, right? Not really. They're just so faint that you're not going to see them from the surface. That's really incredible to me, knowing that there are so many possibilities out there in space that are just lurking in the darkness that we can't see with our own naked eyes. You mentioned an interesting statistic where there's, there seems to be multiple planets around every star across the entire galaxy. So, you know, back in uh, Kurt's days and Picard days, every episode would essentially be a self-contained story where they visit a planet. Uh, looking back, does that seem plausible that they can just find another planet to explore almost every one or two weeks? As long as they have a warp drive, it sounds totally plausible. <laughs> That's the ticket, isn't it? Yeah, can I get one of those for us very soon? So I've heard a little bit in my intro planetary science classes that there's a certain orbital radius within which planets are tidally locked to their stars. And so you mentioned that Earth-like, possibly Earth-like planets orbiting red dwarfs would have to be very close to their star. So would this mean that quote-unquote habitable worlds around red dwarfs would most likely be tidally locked, one so, side always facing, facing the sun? That's a really important question. We're actively trying to figure that out. 
it used to be thought that they probably would be tidally locked and that could cause the atmosphere to freeze out because one side of the planet would be very cold. But you could look at Mercury in our solar system, and Mercury is not quite in resonance with the Sun. It actually rotates a little bit differently than how it spins around the Sun. So you could imagine that a planet might be rotating very slowly, so it would not be tidally locked due to a slightly oval-shaped orbit or to tugs from other planets in the system. And even if the planet is tidally locked, if it has enough of an atmosphere, that atmosphere can retain heat. So the planet could still be habitable. You would just have a weird world in which all the astronomers live on one side of the planet and everybody else probably lives along what we call the terminator between the daylight side and the night side where they're constantly looking at a sunset and maybe they have slightly strong winds. That sounds like an excellent episode of Star Trek. Yeah, hey, Discovery producers, I hope you're listening. One last question for you, Courtney, and actually for everyone here. This podcast is called Strange New Worlds, and we've been discussing how to find all sorts of crazy strange new worlds in real life. If there was one world depicted in Star Trek that you could visit on a holiday uh, and go to and spend some time at, which one would it be and why? Oh, do I want like a beach holiday or do I want like an anthropological, like historical experience holiday? It's hard. You guys go first. I guess the planet has to be habitable. Or can we? Ha- are we allowed spacesuits? You can have a spacesuit if you like, Peter. Just okay. for me. All right. Nice. <laughs> well, I think it'd be really cool to go check out Wolf 359 mm. because there's a chance that we'll find planets around it in the near future because the NASA K2 mission will be looking at it in an upcoming campaign. I actually had a friend who was observing one night texted me, I'm looking at Wolf 359, and I said, tell me if you see any Borg cubes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as basic as this is, I think I'd want to go to Vulcan, because man, those people are fascinating, and um, every little sneak peek that we've got in the series and movies of Vulcan has just been, uh, also I'm a geologist, and, and Vulcan is just rocks, so that's pretty <laughs> exciting to me. Going and seeing the forge, even though it's like supposedly deadly. If I have a spacesuit, I'd be pretty excited. The like the cultural stuff, but then also just basically a planet that's just geology would be pretty awesome to go see. Well, I'm gonna give a cheating answer because uh, this is not so much a planet in Star Trek that I want to visit, but more like a planet that I want to visit with Star Trek technology. I would love to go see a hot Jupiter up close. Uh, you know, work there with a starship and see what it actually looks like. What is a hot Jupiter? Oh, yeah, a hot Jupiter uh, is actually similar to what Elise and Courtney talked about. It's a tightly locked planet, except it is the size of Jupiter and perhaps has the makeup of Jupiter. Uh, And one of the big mysteries, actually, is how it got so close to its star. It it orbits on perhaps a four-day or less period. Usually Jupiter's form way out where our Jupiter forms, but why is it so close? We don't know. I'd love to accompany you on that trip and then take a detour to any small planets that might be with the hot Jupiters. We used to think that they were lonely, that they were all by themselves close into the star and they didn't have any friendly planets near them. But new evidence has shown that some of them actually do have small companions, and that makes it even harder to figure out how these planets might have formed. That's pretty incredible, because you'd think if they migrated in, they would have disrupted anything that was on the inside of their orbit, right? Exactly! So what happened? Let's go to WASP-47 and find out. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds awesome. I'd sign up for that trip. This concludes Episode 2 of Strange New Worlds. We hope you've learned about how we detect planets beyond our solar system. Worlds that we may one day travel to aboard a starship named Enterprise. See you out there.